There's an invisible contract we all signed at birth, a promise. Every hour we work means longer days of freedom and security. It paved the road in your neighborhoods and it added up to a country. But when crisis hit, Trump's government abandoned America. We asked what we could do for our country. They looked for what they could take. But there's a truth written in every history book. If you break the sacred contract, the people make a revolution. All across America, the essential people are demanding a new deal. Well, they call me the deal maker. Ed Markey's desk was thrown out in the hall by the state house bosses. Markey's bill is now the law. I'm Ed Markey. I'm running for Congress because I want to fight for the principles that I believe in. The bosses may tell me where to sit. No one tells me where to stand. My father was a union leader. He taught me, don't beg for your rights. Organize and take them. So in January, I was the first senator to write to Trump. I warned him we needed a plan. I talked to the Democrats and the Republicans. I told them, we've got to save the fishermen. A month later, we had $300 million for our fishing industry. Trump wanted to cheap out, but I helped negotiate $600 a week for any American struggling to find the next gig. They thought the son of a milkman couldn't learn the rules. I made new ones. I don't need to get on the phone and talk to lobbyists to know what working people think. I get on the streets and I listen. I've got a question for one million people. Do you want to freeze the arms race? I put the deal on the table but the people make it impossible to refuse. With 500 laws on the books, you think I'm going to stop now? They wish. Green New Deal. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey introduced their Green New Deal. Stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. We got to absolutely crush Donald Trump in November. But if we're going to end this era of chaos, that won't be enough. We got to make sure President Biden signs the Green New Deal. We can't wait folks in the United States Senate who are willing to stand up for working people. That's who Ed Markey is. I need Ed Markey in the United States Senate. We asked what we could do for our country. We went out. We did it. With all due respect, it's time to start asking what your country can do for you. My name is Ben Burgess. This is GTAA, Give Them an Argument, episode four. I'm going to be joined shortly by Nathan Robinson, who's the editor of Current Affairs Magazine. We're going to be talking about several subjects, but we're going to be starting with an article that Nathan and I co-wrote for the new issue of Current Affairs called uh, Educating Glenn Beck. Uh, And then after that, uh, Yaron Brook from the Ayn Rand Institute is going to come on to do a debate with me about Rand's view that selfishness is a virtue. Uh, and that after that, we are going to have uh, our friend and comrade and contributor, David Griscom on to do another segment of his Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Uh, the voice you just listened to was Senator Ed Markey, who is uh, running for re-election right now. Uh, he's being challenged uh, by Joe Kennedy III uh, in a primary, in a hilarious twist. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, 
who has gone to great lengths to crack down on anybody helping primary challengers before has uh, endorsed this particular challenger. Uh, and she's used as her excuse the fact that in the ad you just watched, if you're watching this on YouTube or just listened to, if you listen to it on a podcast, uh, Marky disrespected the legacy of the sacred Kennedys with that line about how, with all due respect, it's time to ask what your country can do for you. Uh, and I wanted to play this for a few reasons, uh, even though, look, if you look at Ed Markey's record, he's not Bernie Sanders, he's not AOC, he's not Rashida Tlaib, uh, he's not Ilhan Omar, right? Like, for the most part, he has been on the leftish wing of, you know, like regular centrist Democrats. Uh, he's taken a better turn lately uh, as the uh, Senate sponsor of the Green New Deal, along with AOC in the House. And of course, that's why he's being punished right now with uh, having a Kennedy being run against him. Uh, so I wanted to play that at the beginning for at least three reasons. Uh, one is that I think it's important that if anybody is watching or listening to this uh, from Massachusetts, uh, that they um, that they vote for Markey, uh, even though he's not amazing politically. I think if you look at his record, there's lots of place that you could put legitimate critique of what he's done over the decades. Uh, but I think the question is, why are they running Kennedy against him now? Uh, and the reason is that they thought that, okay, well, anybody whose last name is Kennedy uh, is going to win in Massachusetts. That's always worked out for them before. Uh, and they wanted to punish him for siding recently with the left, by, for doing things like co-sponsoring the Green New Deal. And given how urgently, how desperately we need something like the Green New Deal, I think it's important for us to be strategic about this and to say, yeah, you know, Markey is far from perfect, uh, but when the Democrats go after one of their own for siding with vitally important necessary reforms like this, then we need to back that person to teach them that that's not going to be effective for them. Uh, so, so that's the first. That's the first thing that it's it's very important uh, that uh, that Markey uh, win uh, win this election. The primary is on September first, so this is the last episode of the show before then. Uh, and then, um, and then the second thing is that. Well, okay. The real second thing <laughs> is just that uh, the Kennedy family annoys the shit out of me, and in particular, uh, Joe the Third does. He's a caricature of an awful centrist Democrat. Uh, but but the other part, right, is that what he's saying there at the end about how, with all due respect, it's time to ask what your country could do for you is a really good jumping off point for talking about what I want to talk about in the next few minutes before Nathan joins us. So here's the, uh, here's the issue as, as I see it, right? So what I've been trying to do for the last two years since I've been doing this kind of public facing political work is try to do two things. One is to try to get the left to be more strategic about power. That's where things like the critique of cancel culture comes in. Speaking of, Cancel culture, by the way, and speaking of Massachusetts, if anybody is uh, watching or listening to this who's in Alex uh, Morris's district, please, please vote for him. 
Uh, he's actually excellent politically and has been targeted with exactly the kind of moralistic nonsense uh, that I'm always talking about. But as far as Markey goes, uh, that brings us to the other half of what I've been trying to do for the last two years that I've been doing this work, uh, which is to try to uh, teach people to sharpen their argumentative abilities and to use those argumentative abilities to debunk the right uh, and make simple, compelling arguments for basic left positions. And one of those basic left positions is about positive rights, is in other words, about what uh, your country can do for you. The idea that, in fact, it's not the case, as the right wing says, that the only real rights are negative rights. The only real rights are rights against interference, that, oh, the state can't mess with you in some way in your exercise of your rights. That's the libertarian conception. To a great extent, that's the conservative conception, uh, since libertarian rhetoric is a big part of standard American conservatism. Uh, and that's even the centrist conception. So it's the centrist conception that you can see all over the place in, uh, in the way that centrists use words like access, right? Instead of talking about a right to health care, they talk about access to health care. Instead of talking about a right to education, they talk about access to education. Uh, and I think it's incredibly important that we just forthrightly make the case for social rights, for positive rights, not just rights from. Rights from are very important. Rights from censorship, rights from arbitrary imprisonment, democratic socialists are all about those things. But we also care a lot about rights to, rights to healthcare, rights to education, rights to a decent standard of living, rights to a far greater degree of autonomy, both in the workplace and outside of it, than most people get under the capitalist system. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. But one of them, one of the clearest reasons uh, for thinking that we have those kinds of rights, too, is that the negative rights aren't that meaningful if uh, people are powerless cogs in a machine that's run by other people and in the interests of, uh, of other people rather than being run by and for the vast majority of the population. And I'm not just talking about democratic rights, civic rights, rights to uh, control over the polity. That would be things like the right to vote, but also the right to meaningfully politically participate, which you can't have if some people make 400 times as much money as other people and accordingly have absurdly more political influence than other people. That some people, uh, if they call their senator's office, uh, will be lucky to speak to a staffer. Uh, and other people, if they call their senator's office, get to speak to the senator, him or herself. Uh, and finally, and this is going to bring us to the debate that I'm going to have in the second part of the episode uh, with Yaron Brook uh, from, the, uh, from the Ayn Rand Institute uh, about selfishness and self-assertion and greatness. I think that there's a big mistake in how we often frame that issue because very often we accept the enemy's framing, that, oh, they're all about individualism and individual rights and individual greatness and individual assertion, and we're against all that stuff, right? You know, like we want to just dissolve that in some sort of collective goo, which is exactly backwards. Actually, one of the reasons that's so absolutely morally important to talk about 
positive rights, about social rights, about, in other words, uh, what your country can do for you is because that enables everybody to individually flourish. Uh, like a couple of really smart German guys said in 1848 in their manifesto, the free development of each is uh, conditioned by the free development of all. Uh, that, in other words, we don't have to choose between these things. It's not either we have some sort of collective action to make everybody's lives better, or we have room for individual assertion and individual greatness. Rather, we have far more room for individual assertion and individual greatness and individual flourishing in people's own life plans. Uh, that's uh, John Rawls's phrase uh, that, that he likes to use, leaving room for individual life plans for the theory of justice. Uh, if instead of some people having to work all day and being mentally exhausted and not wanting to do anything but go home and watch TV for a few hours before going to bed and starting it all over again, if we live in a society uh, where everybody has their basic needs met, they have a certain amount of autonomy and mental stimulation, uh, and ideally, as we technologically progress, instead of a few Silicon Valley ghouls reaping the rewards of that, uh, while everybody else is lucky to get some sort of uh, UBI bread ration, uh, we spread out the rewards of that so everybody has more free time that they could use to pursue their own projects and their own possibilities. Uh, so, again, if you take that seriously, if you take not just, um, okay, it's monstrously unjust that anybody dies because they're not getting basic preventative health care uh, because they don't have insurance, since they're financially afraid to go to the hospital. That's disgusting. That shouldn't happen. That would be more than a good enough reason to reject this framework that's just about opportunity or access and say that we care a lot about what your country could do for you. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that uh, because if we're going to have a society where everybody can flourish to their full individual potential, uh, then we don't want people in that healthcare example to be staying in jobs they hate because they're afraid of even being temporarily dislocated from their health insurance or even marriages that aren't happy because they're afraid of losing their spousal health insurance. And we certainly don't want some people to have the potential to, uh, to carry out projects uh, that, you know, that would allow them to flourish and other people to just sweat and strive all the time just to pay their bills. If we care about human potential, not just human potential for people who happen through whatever combination of talent and genetic luck, uh, you know, what family they're born into, what kind of financial resources they have uh, to, uh, to be in a position to pursue those projects, but also the potential of all the other people who aren't. All right. How are you doing, Nathan? Oh, good. I, I, I am so well. I'm sorry I'm late. Oh, uh, no worries. It happens. Um, you were having some internet problems? Oh, it's a disaster. New Orleans internet is horrible. Um, and uh, this is what we've learned, is even in the central business district, the internet cuts out every time it rains, which uh, it does constantly. So, yeah. Ugh. Ugh. 
Anyway, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here on my phone. So if it's horrible quality, I'm sorry. Uh, no, fair enough. Um, so, yeah, I'm really glad uh, that, that you are here. Uh, and so so I should say uh, I've known Nathan for uh, a couple of years. He, uh, he gave me a very nice blurb on uh, my first book, uh, gave them an argument, Logic to the Left. Uh, and um, I don't think it's a state secret that we don't always agree on everything, but... Uh, but but we uh, have a lot of fun disagreeing. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I think we do. <laughs> and uh, we respect each other a lot. I, 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 yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and, and I've, I've also been saying for years, right, that, that, that when I say that, that the left should... Um, or some people on the left, right, should should care more about getting the arguments right. That uh, mm-hmm. uh, that that we should care more about, like actually taking the time to debunk uh, right wing nonsense that might seem like mm-hmm. obvious nonsense to us, but does convince a lot of people, uh, and making the case for um, for the sort of basic importance of what the left is advocating. Mm. Uh, very few people do that uh, as as well as Nathan. I've been uh, been reading. Oh, thanks. Uh, for for years, the uh... yeah, this is kind of what brought us has brought us together, right? Is that we have both uh, spent our time with this shared conviction, this shared project of you know having the left take arguments more seriously and be rigorous, and um, you know even and even intra left differences we hash out through actually trying to figure out well what do we really think? Why do we think it is this correct rather than is this the uh, the the standard line that we all just repeat without thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and so because I have been reading for years these uh, these wonderful like take you know ten thousand word takedowns of uh, <laughs> various right wing ghouls uh, that uh, that you've written uh, and liberal ghouls and, and liberal ghouls. That's true. That's that's also that's also very true, right? Uh, and uh, so so. So I was particularly happy to, to recently get a chance to uh, to co-write one of them. I believe that you have the book that we were reviewing there. In front I, have, of you. I have it right here. Now so, you are the reason that we that we had this, right? I believe you're the one who originally discovered this bowl of bowl of spiders, as you refer to it. Yeah, I uh, I had said uh, you know was was getting up to about a hundred people on the Patreon, and, and so I was kind of joking about doing some equivalent of like a food bucket challenge or something for getting up to that threshold. Uh, and then uh, decided that I could do something much more gross than working through an actual food bucket, <laughs> which would be reading every word of arguing with socialists. Arguing with socialists by Glenn, by, by Glenn, Beck. Glenn Beck. Yes. We should say in quotes. Yeah. By Glenn Beck in the sense that uh, if you crack open the book, it tells you that Glenn Beck is a uh, registered trademark, uh, but if you actually look inside there, it has, yeah, three three ghostwriters plus two designers plus an illustrator. So a team of six people in addition to Glenn Beck working <laughs> on the book. Yeah. Um, so so in the review, we kind of use Glenn Beck and Beck's writers interchangeably. Uh, but this was this was clearly a team effort, uh, and you know it's a small thing, but it's worth dwelling on because honestly, that's something I've thought about even just doing this podcast. 
than actually like making this happen and getting all the YouTube videos uh, edited and the illustrations and everything else uh, involves like the efforts of, of, of several people. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, well, and I have the same thing running a magazine, right? I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, where everyone thinks that I run the magazine and the other the labor of other people it gets hidden. And you really see how like, the individual entrepreneur gets elevated and all of the, all of the work that everyone is doing to, to maintain that the, the whole institution just sort of disappears from sight. So yes, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful microcosm of how capitalism works is that uh, these people, Glenn Beck, I don't think probably wrote a single word of this book. No, like, like I expect, uh, it's probably not like Art of the Deal where Trump may or may not have read the book. Uh, you know, like I expect that he at least like sort of read through it to sign off on yeah. it. That'll be my best guess. Uh, but yeah. Well, he, even uh, has, he even has the little, the little, on every page, it has a little approval sticker, right? <laughs> have you noticed it had in the, in the little corners, it says approval by Glenn. Yeah, um, you usually don't see that in books, like the uh, the the candidate approving the message at the end of an ad. Approved, approved. Yeah, <laughs> I endorsed this message. <laughs> Be interested to go through it and see if there are any pages that we left off the approval. Uh, but but yeah, absolutely. Like thinking about how many people wrote Glenn Beck's uh, book. Thinking about it again, again, even how many people are involved in um, a you know a magazine like like Current Affairs mm-hmm. that is. Uh, because we we live in an unjust world, like doesn't exactly have the circulation of the New York Times, uh, but like how many Someday. people have to uh, have to be involved in making that happen, uh, or how many people are involved? Even getting a podcast off the ground every week really yeah. puts into perspective yeah. the worship of CEOs of corporations who uh, mm-hmm. uh, who rely on the labor of thousands <laughs> of people as like unique <laughs> we- job creators and innovators, as if as if Steve Jobs back in the day was just um, was was just single-handedly tinkering in his workshop. We uh, we read a, a feature that I really liked a couple months ago called Texts from Elon Musk to His Engineering Team, where it was just things like, can you make it fly by end of business Friday? And and it was just all these things where, you know, Elon Musk talks about doing these things. He talk, Elon Musk is making this, and you're like, no. Oh, his engineers he doesn't know anything he's he's literally telling the engineers can you make this and then they have to work around the clock to make his dreams come true yeah well of course elon musk is a particularly good example because oftentimes um when he unveils things they don't actually work so the whole process is kind of reminiscent of like kind of the worst of uh, a Soviet-style central planning system where it's like, oh, you know, Comrade Dropoff says that you need to make this work by the party <laughs> congress, but Comrade, yeah. it's impossible. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Find a way. Yeah. Capitalism is central planning. This is what we need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's... that's uh, it's just unjust central planning, as Lee Phillips, uh, you know, you put, you put the uh, into our review the, uh, the citation of People's Republic of Walmart and the way that uh, people like Beck overlook the extent to which giant not just non-democratic bureaucracies uh, already do all the economic planning. Um, yeah, yeah, ex- exactly, right? Somebody is going to be making decisions, right? There are going to be people in any economic system beyond the unit of like a couple of people tinkering their garage or something uh, and bartering, right? There are going to be some yeah. people making decisions and other people carrying out those decisions. 
uh, the real core question, as I've always seen it, is whether the was whether the decision makers have some sort of democratic accountability to yeah. everybody else. But of course, right. that's that's a that's an issue that's uh, given pretty short shrift in uh, arguing with socialists. And I think one of the things that we yes. realized very quickly is that uh, despite the title, neither Beck nor anybody who uh, wrote the book ever seems to have actually argued with the socialists. They don't seem to know uh, yes, what the well, arguments are. Don't you find that this, I mean, you know, I, I resent you for bringing this book into my life. Um, but when I saw that you were reviewing it, I was kind of excited um, because I like arguing with people as, as you do. And it's always, and I like engaging with the other side's case. But when I got a hold of this book, um, and just to say, we've got, in the latest Current Affairs, we have our review of this book written, and it's really, really fun because we imitate the graphic design of the book as well as the, uh, um, as well as, as well as reviewing it in a, in a straightforward way. This book is really kind of paradoxical because on the one hand, it's, it's dumber than you might think, but it's also more intelligent than you might think. Yeah, it's, that, that, that's, yeah. That, that's right, right? So, so I, I want to back up a little bit here to, sure. to, to set this up. Uh, since actually uh, in writing this this review uh, and in the spirit of of actually crediting people and not being like Glenn Beck, should also say that in addition to my work and your work on this, uh, the the illustrator really uh, ah, Nick Sorotich, yes, he did a great job imitating the art of this uh, of this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but in writing it, uh, your sacrifice was actually greater than mine because because uh, I only read. Glenn Beck's book, but you actually also wrote read a uh, a whole biography of Beck, so so you did much more immersion <laughs> in the mind of Glenn Beck than I did, uh, and, and I was wondering if you could set that up a little bit, like like okay, yeah. so people, well, people might kind of remember sure. Beck as the crazy man who was flying mm-hmm. things on uh, chalkboards on Fox News during the Obama administration uh, that that looked like. Uh, they were. They looked like the scene of the movie where somebody is descending into madness, and they think that everything is connected. <laughs> yeah, very quite literally. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much like that. Uh, and and a lot of people, I think, on the left think that oh, Beck is just well, his star has fallen, which is true. But yeah. then I think the thing they make a mistake about is that his star hasn't fallen so much that he's not, unfortunately, right now influencing lots more people than we are. Right, like that, uh, well, that, yes, that's still true, right? That's even the sort of second-tier conservative pundits have like ten times our audience. It's really quite yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which is why, which is why it's worth uh, worth engaging. Yeah, by just thinking yeah. About. So I, I, I get this with the like when I talk about Dinesh D'Souza too, like yeah, who yeah. pushed out of the conservative movement and is seen as ridiculous in the kind of mainstream conservative movement. But like you know, and his movies are like a flop by blockbuster standards but they're like you know he has millions of people buy buy his books these yeah people, well these Obama's America was actually in theaters yeah yeah I haven't <laughs> yeah so, our, so exactly yeah. like unfortunately like compared to yeah. the category of the population that uh, reads Jacobin or current affairs or watches <laughs> movies that we like you know <laughs> that are about politics yes uh you know, yeah. like a, a conservative whose star has fallen uh, means a conservative who's still reaching an awful lot of people and we should engage with. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I, I yeah. just wondered if you could well, speak for a yeah, minute. Yeah, so on Glenn Beck's career, there's yeah. really this, uh, this uh, book called Common Nonsense. Um, is, it was released during the sort of peak of Glenn Beck's career. And 
he was very interesting for a conservative pundit because he came out of the world of morning zoo radio. Um, and in fact, he was kind of a prodigy in morning zoo radio. He, he was obsessed with Orson Welles as a child and the War of the Worlds, and even his company is named after Orson Welles' Mercury uh, Theatre. And I mean, the, the sort of craft of radio began to interest him uh, a great deal. And he became, as like a teenager, the youngest morning zoo host in the, in the country. And I mean, he really... His career, his radio career had real ups and downs because he had a drug problem. But um, but he was, I think it's worth noting that he, he had some kind of mastery of this, of the craft of creating compelling, I mean, not the sort of radio that I would ever listen to, but the sort of radio that consists of like sexist humor and parody songs and funny voices and, and all of that stuff and using the, all the bells and whistles. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's entertaining, which, uh, yeah. which, which, which is an important point, right? Because yes, Beck has always known how to put out a good show. He's that an was, entertainer like the president. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, like, like that's part of why progressives uh, back when he was doing the chalkboard routine, uh, love to hate watch him uh, because yes. because it's he fascinating. was fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Right, and and I think that really comes out in this book uh, yes. because as as absurd as the arguments are, we'll get to that. Uh, it is also the case that it's uh, that it that it's a very entertaining read, especially I would imagine <gasps> if you don't come it's, into it with some sense of why no. what he's saying is so ridiculous. It's full. Oh, um, yeah. Of, of cartoons. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, he made very compelling television. Um, in many ways, his similarities to the president are strong because, you know, Trump is just fascinating to watch and is funny and is charismatic, even as the things that he is saying are just completely divorced from reality. And even as his agenda is really, is, is really horrifying. Um, you know, this is why Glenn Beck rose so quickly and, you know, see He started on CNN. This is the crazy thing. Like he had a CNN headline news show um, because they knew he'd get ratings and he did. Um, and then he found his natural home on Fox. His ratings were very good on Fox. And eventually they parted ways because I think he, you know, said too many controversial things and the advertisers started pulling out. And he also didn't want uh, even Fox telling him what to do. So he went on to found his own media empire, The Blaze, which has kind of foundered, but also still has, you know, as we say, a lot of money and quite an audience. And he's been, and he puts out just, he's just a book factory. And he puts out tons of these books. And the thing that struck me and why I wanted to, when I got it, I really wanted to review it with you is that like, it's, it is unique in that it does kind of some of what we do at Current Affairs where it combines visual design with arguments. And so he has all this pseudo-argumentation. It's set up like it's a, a school notebook or a textbook with all these like discussion questions and all these little sidebars and pop quizzes and cartoons. And he just throws everything in and it's an actually a fascinating product. And from a design perspective, it's incredibly well designed and well put together. Yeah. It's, it's, it's set up kind of as a, uh, imitation of like a middle school social studies kind of textbook. That's basically what it looks like, mm -hmm. but it's a much more irreverent version of that. So 
The textbook uh, layout makes it look very uh, accessible. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the humor, even though, I mean, a lot of it is humor. <laughs> sort of, uh, I mean, you know, like so a lot of it is about, you know, these kind of racist caricatures and things like that, but also, Indeed. uh, also a lot of the humor, even when it's kind of grown worthy dad jokes, uh, is the sort of thing that puts people at ease. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. and so I, I think there's a lot that could be learned from it just as propaganda. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's also worth noting um, that uh, the mainstream uh, media and, and liberals have been very credulous uh, about Beck. That obviously, yes, yeah, that's such an important point and and one that uh, you know we bring up in the review is that from CNN giving Beck a spot as like a mainstream commentator to what happened a couple of years ago in 2016, where Beck did this kind of very brief attempt to give himself this publicity makeover, um, in which he said, I'm the new Glenn Beck, I'm reformed, I'm no longer the crazy chalkboard guy, I want everyone to love each other, I believe in just reason and dialogue and bipartisanship. And they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And there were all these profiles going like the new reformed Glenn Beck. He's reflected on the damage he's done. Samantha B had him on and they both wore Christmas sweaters and they had cups of tea and they talked about how they both didn't like Trump. Um, but clearly that didn't make much money for him because he immediately reverted into like his coronavirus stuff has been really off. The, it has been fully like as many people need to die as keep the, to keep the economy going as, 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 as necessary. And this book, of course, just traffics in vicious anti-socialist stereotypes and has no interest whatsoever in taking the arguments actually seriously. And it's just a, a pure piece of, of propaganda for the worst kind of laissez-faire capitalism and the yeah, dismantling he's, he's really- of the welfare state. Yeah, he's really reverted to uh, to vintage Beck uh, in, in this. Oh, point, right? yeah, he's, he's come all he's come all the way back around, uh, and, and and I think that it's. Uh, I mean, I, I think this is this is worth noting. I mean, obviously, the Samantha B thing says something about uh, you know how the hung, the strange hunger among liberals for somebody they can think of as, uh, as a reasonable reactionary. Uh, <laughs> the search for the reasonable conservative. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Like there's a reason that uh, for about like five years before John McCain ran for president in 2008 and everything suddenly reversed. Uh, he was like John Stewart's favorite guest on the daily show. Right. We love John McCain. Uh, and even somebody like Beck, right? I mean, like, there's there's no reason he couldn't just join the parade of um, of Republican ghouls from the Bush administration and that era who have been accepted with open arms uh, into the anti-Trump resistance, except that he kind of stuck a toe in those waters, realized that there wasn't as big an audience for it as he hoped there would be, uh, and, and just went back to his usual bullshit. Uh, but uh, but in the uh, in the book, right? This uh, I, I like that you mentioned his coronavirus commentary because actually I thought one of the most unintentionally and gribbly funny things in it is at the end he talks about how how much better everything has gotten in the last hundred years thanks to capitalism. Oh God, yeah. And one of his examples is oh look at what was going on a hundred years ago the Spanish flu was killing all these people things have advanced so much since then uh, which 
and also the business about uh, how uh, there are toilet paper shortages in Venezuela. Can you imagine that? You know, it doesn't age well either. Uh, but in general, what you get for this book is a couple things, right? So one of them is a lot of not wanting to make distinctions between liberals and socialists. Right, right, right. <laughs> so he'll, he'll, make a, he'll use a lot of phrases like progressives and socialists say X, right? Progressives and socialists, yeah. what, why? Uh, and so, in fact, one of the people on the cover of the book, I believe, uh, is Elizabeth Warren, right? Who famously right. described herself as capitalist or bones, uh, but she's somehow on the cover of a book uh, called Argue with Socialists. And this isn't, of course, look, this is like standard right-wing stuff, not to make a lot of distinctions among people who disagree with them. This is particularly standard Glenn Beck stuff, right? Back in the chalkboard era, he was literally arguing that there was a line from like the Obama administration to the weather underground, right? So he certainly wasn't yeah. making a lot of distinctions between shades of opinion to his left. But I think <laughs> the reason it maybe matters as far as the arguments in the book is that he doesn't really have a lot that he could say to explain, for example, why the healthcare policy that socialists actually want, which is single payer, would be yeah. bad. So instead, he spends a lot of time in a book called Argue with Socialists, explaining why Obamacare is bad. Right. Uh, and if he'd ever actually argued with the socialists, the first thing they would tell him is, yeah, we hate that, right? Like, you know, yes. this is not, I, this is not <laughs> all what we want. Yes. And I, I want to, because you, your audience might want and I, I think every time I write about a horrible conservative, um, if I get too quickly into why they're wrong and stupid, mm. my audience, your audience probably goes, well, of course they're wrong and stupid. Oh, you're shocked that they misrepresent. I, I think one of the things that we dwell on in the review, and again, that is the subject of your uh, give them an argument, you know, why you actually have to respond to this stuff, why it's worth going through and pointing out these distinctions, is I do want to emphasize again how well put together even the arguments, even though they're wrong, they're very well organized, right? They're very like, let's go through the environmental policies. Let's go through the Green New Deal. He has like a long section about modern monetary theory. And even though for most of the book, he is quite literally arguing with straw socialists, right? They make up these little cartoon yeah, the, imaginary He has socialists. these fake Twitter handles uh, that are yes. things like Rashida Resistance, and, or my and you mentioned favorite. Clay Guevara, yes, who is Clay Guevara. like a stone, like a made-up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, at that point, you might as well just call this fictional Twitter user Straw Man Socialist 1917. Although uh, I will say, the one called Professor Tweed does not look completely unlike you. <laughs> I'm not saying he looks exactly like you, but I'm saying that Professor Tweed... You know, but, but he doesn't use any real quotes, right? He makes up what he thinks Mr. Professor Tweed would, look, would say if he were here, which he isn't. Um, you know, but then at the same time, they've got footnotes in some of it. Like the MMT section does have some quotes. Uh, but for the most part, the only socialists you hear from are like, you know, a, a, a quote from AOC here and there. Yeah, the, the quotes that you see from socialists uh all have very much the feel to them of probably not even one of the people who's listed on the, in, in the inside of the book, 
but like an intern or somebody who's working for one of these people um, being given an assignment like, oh, we're going to talk uh, in this part about uh, privacy and government power, find a quote to like illustrate this, right? Find a quote from a socialist saying that they want a uh, Green New Deal so we can like open up the environmental thing because the arguments themselves always have kind of a tenuous relationship to the quotes. The quotes are there to set them up. Uh, and I guess at some point they decided that if they only uh, had, uh, had like fake uh, tweets from cartoon socialists, uh, that it would like, it, like it would be too disconnected from what yeah. the opponents they're supposedly arguing about would say. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I like that you raised this question about why it is that like, okay, cause you, cause it's a very natural response. Say, Look, yeah, Glenn Buck is a lunatic. We all know this. Why are you even wasting your time on this? And I think that a key part of the response is, yeah, we know that, right? <laughs> but the point isn't to convince people who are already leftists or socialists. The, uh, the point is to, um, is to give people who already agree with us the tools with which they can uh, argue with, with people who don't, right? Or ideally, mm-hmm. of course, if we could get them to write, read current affairs, get the people who, uh, who, <laughs> yeah. might be, who, who might be marks, you know, for, uh, for what Beck is doing to read it. Uh, but, but at the very least, that, uh, that, that if we could get people on our side to have a better sense of how to respond to this argument, uh, then indirectly, right, we can address all the people who are a legion who, uh, who are persuadable by this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that like one of those things that we we're talking about, this like constant conflation of what liberals say with what socialists say, uh, is really important because I think one of the things that reveals when you start thinking about it is that oftentimes Beck or Beck, Beck's writers, uh, like don't really have a lot they could say about the things that socialists actually advocate. So just a couple quick examples, uh, Socialists advocate universal, non-means-tested social programs, but when uh, Beck is making his case against the welfare state, and he literally says, by the way, in this book, this sounds like a straw man, but he says it, uh, that uh, organizations like the Lions Club and the PTA uh, could, uh, could, could make Jerry up. Lewis telethons. Could Jerry Lewis telethons. For, that was one of his examples for the welfare state of, uh, of private organizations that could fill the role of the welfare state. Uh, so, but when he's arguing against, uh, an expansive welfare state, uh, he talks about things like benefits clips. In other words, cases where their programs are means tested. So for example, if you're going to lose your Medicaid qualification, if you get a little uh, somewhat better job or more hours, then you have an incentive, you have a perverse incentive to keep the worst job or the fewer hours because you'd be no worse off overall with, with a little bit more money but no health insurance. And of course, that's true. Yes. But <laughs> what any socialist would immediately point out is yeah. that's why we're against means tested. That's yes. why we want universal sweeping social programs. Uh, or, or one other example of this, I think uh, the part of the reviewer who pointed this out was you, uh, was written by you. Uh, he, he gives the example of, uh, of minimum wage laws and, uh, and it's superficially, it looks good. He cites some very reputable sounding sources to say, that a $15 minimum wage 
would mean that fewer people uh, were employed. Now he cherry picks the sources, of course, uh, and uh, he cherry picks what they're saying, right? I think you pointed out mm-hmm. that the uh, Congressional Budget Office in particular said that some people would lose their jobs, uh, but also- And that, that other people, would, and millions of people would be lifted out of poverty, and he conveniently left out the part where millions of people are lifted out of poverty. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds good. It sounds authoritative, but then you're just skipping the other half of the cost-benefit analysis. Uh, you're also skipping the studies that say that that's not even true about jobs. But even if it is true about jobs, as you point out, uh, like a $15 minimum wage is even in terms of short-term reforms within the existing system, not the only thing that socialists want to have happen. Right. Right. And, and, and I think one point that needs to be made here is that notice that the things you've just said do not mean that there are factually false claims in the book. And this is what's, I think, really important, why I like your emphasis on argument so much, because it is, in fact, the case that the study that he cites says what he says it says. Right. Right. It is, in fact, the case that there are perverse incentives with means testing so that if you uh, if your income goes up, you lose your benefits. So you might not want more income. So you might work less hard, whatever. Those things are not so oftentimes conservatives who emphasize, quote, facts. They say, but look, all of this is facts. Um, I, I what disprove a single thing that I've said. Dinesh D'Souza often does this. He says, you can't disprove a single, I dare you to find a single false statement in the book. You say conservatives lie all the time. I haven't said a single thing that's false. And I think one crucial thing, and the reason the arguments are so important, is because what people don't recognize is you can lie with facts. You can lie with facts, or, and it seems paradoxical to lie with facts. A fact is a thing that is true. A lie is a thing that is, is false. How can you lie with facts? And the reason is you can lie with facts because of the arguments that you use them in the service of. And, you know, as you say, you leave, you leave the, fact, the inconvenient fact out. You select, you know, cherry picking is not, you haven't, when you cherry pick, you haven't said anything that is actually Untrue. I'm doing a, a climate change denial book right now, and it's interesting because it's the same thing where they don't say things that are false. They point to like a Pacific island that has gained landmass rather than lost landmass, and they go, "Some Pacific islands are actually gaining landmass." Or they say like a glacier. This glacier has actually grown, not glaciers overall, but they pick a glacier, and it's true. So you can go through and and you might say like everything in this book is true, right? Could be. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's why, right, so just to just kind of spell out the thought there, uh, it's, it's important because it's, cause if all you're saying is they're cherry-picking, which is true, uh, then you haven't quite gotten where you want to go uh, in terms of showing what's wrong with it because, of course, there are always, for all practical purposes, infinitely more facts you could talk about that yeah. you actually will talk about when presenting right. the case, right? So you need to show that the facts being left out are relevant somehow. Uh, and to show why they, they're relevant, you need to be able to show that if what they're saying, even if what they're saying is true, 
what they're getting out of it doesn't follow, right? Like, in other words, that, yeah, it could be true that some of the islands are gated landmass, but here's how that could be true without it being true that global climate change isn't a serious problem, uh, even because of the landmass issue. Uh, it could be true uh, that some people uh, would lose their jobs uh, with, with a higher minimum wage, but it wouldn't be true that that would be a net loss for the working poor, or even necessarily that that would be a net increase in unemployment because we also want federal jobs programs. Well, yes. Oh, a really important point on the minimum wage that I always cite is that, you know, we're socialists, right? And the argument that raising the minimum wage causes job loss is premised on the maintenance of capitalism, right? Why does raising the minimum wage threaten to, to, to shed jobs? The argument that conservatives make is they always say, you well, if you raise the minimum wage, I, the business owner who wants to preserve my profits, will make my employees work twice as much and I will fire a bunch of people. And you say, well, uh, and therefore, raising the minimum wage will increase unemployment. And that might be factually true. But the important thing is it's premised on the maintenance of that relationship between capitalist and laborer, where we have a system where the wealth is in the hands of the people who are their only interest. They operate on a sociopathic profit maximizing logic. And so they are willing to destroy people's livelihoods rather than eat into their own profits. That's the underlying premise of the argument that factually a minimum wage raise would, re would raise unemployment. And socialists would respond by saying, well, this is one reason why reforms that take place under capitalism are actually very limited in what you can get out of them. Just by raising the minimum wage and maintaining that division of who has power and control is ultimately limited for precisely the reason you've just pointed out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, we can. Uh, I think this is this is true for a lot of the things that that we point out uh, about capitalism. That the incentives that conservatives love to point out uh, that oh, if you impose this or that reform, uh, capitalists in order to preserve their profit margins have have an incentive to like compensate that for compensate for that by screwing people over somewhere else to make up for having to screw them over less over here. And of yeah. course, that is a great reason in itself to have a problem with capitalism. Uh, and we don't have to go to utopian here. We can, we can look at real world examples like the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, uh, which is a massive worker-owned company, uh, where, uh, of course, it exists within a market. They, they, they experience market shocks and market pressures like any other company. But the decision making about the by the company about how to, what to do with the resulting pay that needs to be distributed yeah. is just going to be very yeah. different. It has verifiably been very different because rather than an external owner who has different interests for the workers, the workers themselves are at least elected the people who are making these yeah. decisions, which, which shockingly matters quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I do want to uh, highlight yeah. one other thing uh, that we talk about in the review which uh, people I know can, you're, can you read know. in the new uh, print issue of Current Affairs, which I think is just being yeah. sent to people now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and 
I guess they could read online in a few weeks, maybe. Uh, but uh, there, there's a point in there where he uh, he talks about um, about the relationship between capitalism and socialism and individual potential in a way that kind of relates to what we're about to talk, you know, what I'm about to talk about with Yara Brook and kind of the broader theme I've been trying to hit in the show. Uh, and so this is what he says. This is, well, Beck's writers from his book. Uh, socialists believe that we can make the world a better place by taking property and wealth away from people who have it and centralizing economic, political, and social power. But I believe America is best when individuals are empowered with the freedom to pursue their own hopes and dreams. Maybe you're an auto mechanic who hopes to one day open your own shop. Or maybe you're a nurse who spends your free time studying to become a doctor. Whatever it is that drives you, that makes you feel excited about life, that's your American dream. And I believe that when we're free to pursue our own unique passions and goals in life, we're all better off. Nathan, why do we hate dreams and want to crush them? Well, but don't you see, I, I mean, again, I think people need to see that that actually, if you don't know much, if you haven't thought much about it, it sounds very compelling, doesn't of it? Course. I mean, it is this stirring language about, I just want you to be free to pursue your dreams. And, you know, we have to then spend a lot of time like deconstructing every phrase in there and going, okay, but what do we mean by a dream who has like how do you how do you start your own business well you need capital you know who has the capital let's talk about inherited wealth let's talk about how privilege is passed on from generation to generation right you know it's it, it's very, the world is very complicated but there are these beautiful simple packaged messages about freedom and about not being interfered with by the state and how you know the we the 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 private sector are the creators of all wealth and the state are just parasites and it takes time you know our essay is like eight thousand words <laughs> we are only just beginning right to go through every argument in this book would take so so long which is why I think it's so important that we as socialists right I I I, I can't even begin to go through and, and get all the stuff that is wrong except to say that socialists are the the core socialist argument has always been that capitalist freedom sounds great but in practice is an illusion and we need to think about what really creates freedom in people's lives and how to give that to them because the freedom to work or starve is not real freedom right but we yeah. as socialists need to think about not only how to debunk the arguments but how to present them in really compelling ways because the thing that i got out of this book was being really scared at how persuasive it could be to someone who does not have a, a very strong economic background, has not really thought about the claims of socialists, and doesn't know what the real socialist would actually say in response. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I guess also, like really quickly, some, a point that we make in the review is, yeah, that nurse who wants to become a doctor, hey, do you think she's going to have a better Free chance? College. Becoming a doctor if uh, higher education is tuition free or if she has to go into debt to get it. That seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, and the auto mechanic would start up his own place. Uh, I think that there could be there, that example, some conflict between different conceptions of freedom. But I sure. guess the real, the real question is, is the point, right? Like, how is this shop going to be organized, right? Because if it's going to be organized as a cooperative, we love that, right? Yeah. 
Uh, what if your dream is like the mechanic who dreams of one day exploiting other people? Like, one day I'll be the person. Yeah, I want to be the boss who could just tell everybody else what to do and pressure them to come in on their days like, off. And okay, all that well. Stuff. Then, okay, maybe that dream we wouldn't sign off on because uh, <laughs> if your dream is to be Stalin uh, and, to, uh, and to, like, <laughs> oppress other people, that's not necessarily a dream, a great dream. that is valuable to us. But if what we're talking about is having as many people as possible yeah. get to live up to their full potential, that will right. Yes. Well, agreed. What a, what a beautiful note to, to, to end on. Right. Uh, good luck with the Aron Brook. I'm excited to, to, to watch that. All right. <laughs> Don't I, let him get away with anything. Okay. I'll do my best. Uh, thank Nail, you so much for coming on. All right. So nice to talk to you, Ben. Always great. Everyone, I hope everyone reads this review. We had fun writing it. Thank you. Bye. Wright's caricature of socialism is that it is anti-innovation and anti-personal achievement. As Jordan Peterson would frame it, the suppression of the individual to the collective. Now, this is false, and it's just the Wright's attempt to argue that the creativity and ambition found across all cultures and societies is something that is unique to capitalism. When in fact, capitalism has become a barrier to the fulfillment of a mass universal human greatness. The right believes that people's economic and social circumstances are determined by their effort or their genius or their merit. But clearly this can't be the case. Do you really believe the average CEO is working 400 times harder than the average worker? Because that's how much more they're making. Or take, for example, somebody like Jeff Bezos, who nearly doubled his wealth in the past six months. Did he double his effort during COVID? Was he delivering packages? Was he on the line with the other workers? No, he accumulated this money by dominating the market for distributing consumer goods and hyper exploiting his workers, as well as firing anyone who pushed back against their working conditions. Socials see this problem as a capitalist one because we recognize that the current economic relationships are insufficient for people to realize their full and true potential. Why is that? It's because capitalism creates artificial barriers to achieving greatness. This is not a new idea on the left or in Marxism. This is literally in the manifesto where Karl Marx wrote, the free and full development of each is the precondition for the free and full development of all. That's why literally every socialist program or project or party has made quality free education a primary political demand and also a political practice with many parties and organizations offering free political education, arts education and cultural education to anybody who was interested. Now, the right's counterpoint would be that socialists aim to raise the floor of achievement and access by suppressing those at the top. 
creating a mediocre society where equality means we all suffer in mediocrity. They've got this backwards. In actuality, those at the top of society and the economic system that places them there have inhibited the possibilities and creativity of those at the bottom. Think about somebody like Elon Musk, who is oftentimes heralded as a capitalist who is bucking the trend, a new generation, a shift in the system. Well, let's think about this man. Is he truly great? This is somebody who inherited tremendous wealth, bought Tesla and the title founder, by the way, so that he could buy the praise and admiration of others. And as CEO, he gets credit for the work of his employees, all while profiting off of technology that was created and paid for by the public sector and receiving massive government contracts. That's not greatness. That's just a case of being in the right class position in capitalism. Greatness is somebody like Paul Robeson, certainly one of the greatest Americans and easily one of the greatest socialists to have ever lived. He was incredible in every aspect of life. He had incredible character. He was a record-holding running back. He was an actor, a singer, and a lawyer. He wasn't somebody who was great because of capitalism. He was great in spite of it. At every turn in his life, Robeson had to overcome American racism capitalism, and a gatekeeping system that is meant to keep artistic and intellectual achievement in the possession of the rich, a system that truly promotes mediocrity. And what did Robeson do with the success? He committed himself to the struggle for socialism, for economic democracy, and the fight against colonialism, all while bringing his thunderous voice to the workers of the world. He traveled around the globe singing free concerts from Liverpool to Australia. That's greatness in general. But it's also a kind of socialist greatness, a greatness that's rooted in achievement, but also in solidarity and righteousness. That's the greatness that socialists aim to achieve. But socialists don't think that we all need to struggle as tremendously as Robeson did. We look to him for inspiration, yes, because of his ability to overcome a regime that's tried to suppress him. But we also believe that nearly all humans have unrealized potential that is not achieved because of these obstacles. They don't need to be there. Literally, every challenge in Robeson's life, he would have been better off without these kind of capitalist, artificial, unnatural challenges. Capitalism is an unnatural system. It keeps people dependent on the market to secure their basic needs. And this has not always been the case in human society. And there's no reason to assume that it always will be or is necessary to achieve a great society. Quite the contrary. Stephen Jay Gould, the great evolutionary theorist, said... I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than I am in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. So no, socialists aren't against greatness. What we are against are systems that protect the mediocre elites and their privileges at the expense of us all. We're against societies that condemn most human beings to a life of toil and depravity. We believe that socialism is not only possible, but necessary. And that'll be far greater than anything capitalism has offered us. That was uh, David Griscom uh, talking about Paul Robeson and, uh, and the general issue of individual achievement uh, and individual greatness uh, and how it relates to what people are arguing about when they argue about capitalism and socialism. Uh, so we should be joined... Um, very shortly uh, by Yaron Brook.
I can see you now. How are you doing, Yarn? I'm good. I, 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 you were told not to let me get away with anything, so I expect no less of you. <laughs> and I expect that of you. Uh, so I, I watched you uh, do a uh, another conversation about the same subject uh, with our uh, mutual friend Gene Epstein uh, at the uh, at the Soho Forum uh, in New York. Uh, and you know, I, I found it interesting enough that you know that I wanted to invite you on to uh, to talk about it today. I think maybe in that conversation there was more time spent um, on the semantic issue, right, about how to define some of the terms yep. uh, that that I that I would like because I think there is something to be said about that. But I think there's also a way that that can be kind of bracketed, and we could talk about okay, um, like here's one way of using the term, here's another way of using the term. That's great. Now, what's actually true? about selfishness in either of these senses. I'm hoping we can get into that. Uh, so, uh, but first, uh, do you want to uh, say who you are just for a minute? Sure, my name is Yaron Brook. Uh, I uh, used to be the CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute. I am now the chairman of the board. I also host uh, the Yaron Brook Show on, uh, uh, on uh, YouTube and, and a podcast. So uh, uh, I, I don't know that any of your viewers will, will like anything <laughs> I say, but if you do, Come over there and and uh, and uh, subscribe. Uh, I cover a lot of different topics uh, from the perspective of objectivism, which is Ayn Rand's, Ayn Rand's philosophy. And let me just say, you'll have to invite me back sometime to debate that video we just saw. Which oh I no, I would love that. Right? Worse than abhorrent, right? Uh, <laughs> dishonest to the core. So I would love to. I would love to debate well, well, every well, I, every I, aspect of it. <laughs> I certainly. Uh, I certainly don't think so, right? I think I, I know you don't. Everything, <laughs> I know that's uh, everything I he says in there, but uh, but yeah, I, I, absolutely. There is an invitation to uh, to come back in the future uh, to get into anything that's covered in the video that uh, that that we don't talk about today. Uh, maybe if Dave Griscom would like to talk to you about that, I certainly would, right? So regardless of whether he does or not, you certainly have that invitation. But the reason okay, that I want. As you know, I, I debate socialist often, and and uh, and I think it's a it's an important debate to have. Uh, you, you guys have a, a large audience of young people, and uh, and and I think I think exposing them to the real differences in ideas, rather than Glenn Beck, who I think is, eh, you know, not a great defender of individualism or, or freedom for that matter, or capitalism. Uh, I, I think this debate is more interesting. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think Beck is worth arguing with because lots, oh, yeah, of, lots of people are listening to what he's saying, uh, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure you think uh, that socialists are worth arguing with uh, for similar reasons, uh, if nothing else. Yep. Uh, but the uh, the reason uh, that that I wanted to, to introduce this this topic by talking about that is because that sets up how I would certainly see this issue about selfishness and self assertion and, and individual greatness, right? That uh, that it's not these it's not that uh, pursuit of individual excellence uh, is a bad thing, uh, but, uh, but I do think that there's a real difference about whether all of morality is about pursuit of individual excellence uh, and, and, whether, and whether Rand's view about this is right. Uh, but I, I don't want to anticipate too much of what you're going to say. So, uh, so why don't we just take the next few minutes, like part of the value of, of what I'm trying to add here with this show is that I don't just, I don't just want to talk to people I agree with, right? I, I also want to talk to people who I 
vehemently disagree with, right? I think I think you just said everything uh, David Griscom said was abhorrent, right? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's so so let's do that, right? So why don't, why don't you just take a few minutes to lay out Rand's view about selfishness and and why you think that's right and how you think that's different from how people like me might be getting this wrong. Sure, and I don't know what you're getting sure, about self-interest or selfishness. I'll present my view, and then you sure, can sure. you can you can uh, present yours, and then we'll we'll have a discussion about it. Look, I, I think that um, human beings, and I'm going to go pretty basic, and then and then expand. I'm going to go to the foundation of morality. I think, which is fundamentally a choice that every individual faces about whether he wants to live or not to live. And, and this goes to the very nature of, of, of being human. We don't, we're not born with the knowledge of how to live, how to live well, how to survive even. We, we don't know how to hunt. We don't know how to do agriculture. I mean, agriculture is a massive achievement that took 90,000 years of human beings being alive before they figured it out. Hunting is a massive achievement that took, took figuring out tools and weapons in order to figure out, and only then could human beings success. So, Human survival is an achievement. And every one of us has to, in a sense, achieve that in our own lives. And to do that, we need to discover the knowledge necessary in order to survive, to thrive, to achieve, to be somebody, to live with a capital L, to be successful uh, at living. And that, I think, is what morality should teach us. So in my view is morality should be about, and this is kind of goes back to Aristotle, Aristotle's view of morality. Morality should be about the values and virtues that we all should adapt, the universal values and virtues that apply to every human being, that are necessary in order for human beings, A, to survive, and B, to thrive, to just be successful at living as a human being. And it's important here to recognize what does it mean as a human being? What makes human beings unique? What makes human beings different than other animals? Well, one is we have, we have the capacity to choose. We have free will, which other animals don't. They're automatized. They, they're born with the knowledge of how to live. It's all automatic. They don't get to choose. But what to choose, how to choose, um, that, is, that is the key. And what makes us human is the fact that we have this capacity, a reason, our ability to think rationally, to make choices. So if I am pursuing my life, if I want to live the best life that I can live, if I want to live a great life, if I want to live the, the best life available to me, then I need to live based on my own nature. And my own nature is, as Aristotle again put it, as a rational being, as a thinking being, as a reasoning being. Therefore, for egoist, for somebody interested in their own life, making the most of it, the most important thing to do is be rational, use reason, think, um, and, and choose, use reason to choose the values that are necessary to live a good life. And, and while there are certain universal values that I think apply to all of us, the specific values are going to defer. We're going to have different approaches to what to do in life in order to achieve our personal greatness or, or to live that full, complete, whole life that is possible to us. Um, you know, other, other things that, that, that I think are necessary, and this, this goes to some of the political issues that revolve on socialism. One of the necessary things for human beings to, to I think, be successful in life is to be productive. It's to produce something. It's, it, whether it's art or whether it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a product or whether it's anything. You have to be able to take care of your material well-being yourself. You have to be able to 
today in a modern sense, we'd say own a living in a more ancient sense, you know, put the food on the table. You have to be able to do that to gain the kind of self-esteem that I think allows you to live a whole complete successful life as a human being. So I think that is the foundation, if you will, for the idea of self-interest. We can call it egoism. We can call it selfishness. I really don't want to get caught up on the word. I want to get caught up in this idea that the purpose of morality should be to provide us with universal principles to live the best damn life we can live, right? You only live, hopefully we agree on this, you only live once, I don't know if you're Buddhist or not, and there's no afterlife, I don't know if you're Christian or not. So I don't believe in an afterlife, I don't believe you live more than once. Make the most of the one life that you have and morality should be a tool, a guide for how to do that. And then we can argue about what are the particular virtues and values that are necessary, that are necessary in order to achieve a good life. But that to me is secondary to the first idea that the purpose of living is to live well. All right. I, I mean, I think that's enough for you to comment and I'm sure we'll have for a lot. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I just didn't want to cut you off. You're still going. Yeah. yeah look, uh, so, so I, I think the, the part of that that seems right to me uh, is of course, well, okay. First of all, uh, I, I agree with you about the, uh, the reincarnation and, and afterlife issues. Uh, I think that we do just have uh, one life to live. We all do, right? Which is why I think that it's important that everybody uh, get a chance to to live up to uh, to their their full potential. Uh, and when we we talk about selfishness, right? If if what we mean by that is having regard for yourself, thinking maybe you even have duty, a certain duty to yourself, uh, that you're you're trying to advance your own potential, then no, selfishness isn't bad. Uh, and if what we mean by selfishness is that you're promoting your own interests at the expense of the interests of others, then I think that it is bad. Uh, and, and I think that we're, um, that, that so far, right. You know, like we might be on the same page. I think that, I think that one place where the divergence happens, uh, is that, um, is that reading Rand, I'm sure you've read lots more Ayn Rand than I have, right? You know, but, but, but reading what I've read, right? You often uh, get the impression from her first uh, that she thinks that like maybe all of philosophy in between Aristotle and her uh, is, uh, is denied uh, that, uh, that, you, uh, that you should try to uh, pursue your own talents, that individual potential is good, is say that all you should do all the time is just sacrifice yourself to other people, which... Uh, clearly isn't right, right? If, uh, if you're a utilitarian, your own happiness counts as much as anybody else. Uh, if you read Immanuel Kant uh, in the sort of thin Kant book that people read in introductory ethics classes, he gives four examples of immoral behavior and two of them, two of the four uh, are examples about people failing in duties to themselves. Uh, there's the person who commits suicide and the, uh, the person who fails to develop uh, his talents and certainly, if you read somebody like John Rawls, he uh, puts great emphasis in how everybody should be able to have, there should be room for people to develop their own life plans, live according to their own conception of a good life within the bounds of certain duties to others. So I think where the real distinction happens, and I guess we'll just do this quickly, first in terms of abstract theory, and then maybe in terms of uh, political takeaway. In terms of abstract theory, I think the real distinction is whether that, whether the difference between just pursuing your own flourishing and pursuing your own flourishing at the expense of other people 
is a meaningful distinction in the first place, right? So I think uh, what Rand seems to think, uh, what, what from what I'm getting from you now and, uh, and what I got out of your debate with Gene Epstein, I think you think, is that uh, that's not really a distinction at all. That like really, if you are harming the interests of other people, if you're getting in the way of flourishing the other people, you're really not uh, fulfilling your own potential or you're really not advancing your own interests. That the interests of rational people, I think Rand says, uh, can't conflict. Uh, and if that's your view, then, then I certainly uh, then I certainly disagree. I think that uh, I think that like to go to Aristotle. Uh, I think that Aristotle was able to flourish to a great extent to uh, to spend his time thinking about science and philosophy and developing his intellectual potential, and was probably a very happy person despite the fact that he was freed up to do that by the labor of slaves. And I have no particular reason to think, given the values of the society that he lived in, that he ever lost a single night's sleep in his entire life over his participation in the institution of slavery. So I think it is possible uh, for people's interests to conflict. And at that point, you don't have to completely sacrifice yourself. You don't have to negate yourself to the point of this sort of pure altruism that maybe describes some threads of some extreme religious views, certainly doesn't describe much of anything else in the history of philosophy. Uh, but you do have to sometimes balance your own interests against the interests of other people. And real quickly on the political takeaways, I think that where this matters politically uh, is, okay, if we think it's important, it's valuable that everybody gets to live up to their full potential, then I don't want some people to fail to live up to their, uh, their full potential uh, because, for example, they were born into poverty, so they have fewer opportunities than other people do, so they have to work some mind-numbing job where they never get the chance uh, to develop their intellectual or artistic or whatever other kinds of potential they might have had in a different kind of society. I don't want some people to spend all day giving orders and some people to spend all day to, uh, all day taking orders. I would prefer that people have democratic rights within uh, within a workplace, like a worker cooperative, and more on a more mundane level in terms of things that might happen in a much short, more short term way. I don't want anybody, for example, not writing that novel they've always wanted to write, not starting up, you know, that project they always wanted to start up uh, because they couldn't because they uh, because they have to work all the time. Uh, to, to support their family. They're worried that if they lose their job, they're going to lose their private employer health insurance. That seems like a huge problem for human potential. So I think the two differences between us, as I read them, you can correct me, are one, whether you can have conflicts between people's flourishing, at which point you have to balance your own interests against the interests of other people. And two, whether capitalism actually serves everybody's flourishing uh, or whether changing that system uh, in both immediate reformist ways, uh, like giving everybody health care, giving everybody free higher education. So if you need to go back to school so you can start to live up to that potential that you currently can't live up to, you could do that, uh, would actually allow far more people to live up to their full human potential. So the challenge here is, you know, you're taking on here, you're moving us from morality to, to politics and, you know, there's just no time to cover everything that you just covered. But let me let me try to cover a few things. I mean, first of all, uh, you are you you 
saying that you agree with me on, on individual success or individuals living their own life, but you switch, you, you switch your um, frame of reference constantly. My frame of reference is the individual, the individual's pursuit of happiness, right? Now, we can talk about other individuals. We can talk about society. We can talk about the world, but that is a different frame of reference. My frame of reference is my life, achieving the best for my life, and everybody out there achieving the best for their lives, right? So you start with what, will, what are the premises that are necessary for me to achieve my success and my life, and then you generalize. You don't start with a duty to maximize social well-being as a utilitarian, as maximize the most happiness to most people, or however you want to phrase it. You don't start with a duty to others, and then you say, within that duty, it's okay for you to achieve whatever you can achieve once you've achieved the duty to others. I'm rejecting that whole approach to morality, that whole approach to ethics. I'm saying, whatever turns out to be my relationship to you, and my commitment to you, and my obligation to you, I hate the word duty, so I'm not going to use it, my commitment to you, has to come from my commitment to myself. That is, the starting point is, what is the life that I live? I've got this one shot at it. Where does this responsibility that I have to other people come from? It doesn't come from God because neither of us, I think, believe in God. It doesn't come from something ingrained in us because clearly some of us don't have that ingrained uh, categorical imperative. I don't anyway. Um, it, 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 to, as a duty to start with a duty to others and only then. And, and, of course, you do this with, with all the philosophers. There indeed is no philosopher, including Kant, particularly Kant, who advocates for the framework to be what's good for me. He says, yes, you should try to achieve whatever you can within a context of duties to others. But well, he that believes in both. But he the, thinks, yeah, he thinks but you the have, primary, the thing that you have right, obligations to yourself yeah, but, and obligations yeah, to the others. If you're not developing yes, your talents, you're not the following the, the, the categorical the narrative. The thing that frames it, the categorical imperatives that frame it, are duties for others. I mean, Christianity no, does the same thing. I'm sorry. Let me just finish. Okay, 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 I'll let you finish your point. I mean, Christ, Christianity does the same thing, right? It says, oh, no, you should live the best life that you can live after you use Jesus Christ as a model for your life, right? So you set up altruism. You set up self-sacrifice. You set up the negation of self as the standard. And of course, Augustine Comte is the only one who's honest enough to actually say it when he says, if you even think about how you're going to benefit from helping somebody else, the joy, the benefit, the emotional satisfaction from it, then it doesn't count as morality. He is the one that's actually honest about it, but philosophers generally, but look, I don't want to get into debate because I, I'm not going to win that debate because, you know, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a student of philosophy about what other philosophers said. I'm here to well, say what well, I read to represent reason, a positive view, not a negative view. Yeah, I think so, you're wrong so, about Kant, but I'm not going to so, quote so, you. So, anything, the, right? so the reason that the Kant thing is important, and I agree, I don't want to get too hung up on that. Yeah. Uh, but the reason this is more than just like an esoteric footnote about the history of philosophy, that Kant's view is that you have both kinds of obligations. This is not, yes, this but, is not, this is not switching frameworks from caring about yourself and caring about others. Where does the second obligation come from? I've explained where your obligation to yourself comes from. Where does the second obligation come from? Where does it come from? Is that both kinds of obligations come from the same place, which is the categorical imperative, and that entails both duties to yourself to develop your own talents and duties to help other people. And again, the reason that's not just an esoteric footnote about what Kant thinks is that this is the view that actually people who disagree with Rand have. Not Rand's straw man 
of perfect altruism. I agree with you. I agree with you. The point is this. Who think think that you should always sacrifice yourself Mm -hmm. and only act for the sake of others, but the actual view that people who disagree with Rand have is that, sure, you should care about developing your own talents. You should care about yourself. That's important. It's also important that you care about other people and helping them develop to their full potential uh, and the that is for complete, that's complete and, that that's if a, we think that human flourishing, human potential is valuable, it's valuable in myself, and I'm going to promote that and try to live up to my potential. It's also valuable in others, which is why I want to create a society where everybody has the best shot of living up to their potential. I don't, we haven't, I haven't got to society yet. I am all for society where everybody has a shot to maximize their potential. Absolutely. We disagree on what that society looks like. I've lived in a society like yours. I've experienced it. I know what are, kind are, of... Are you, are, you, are you calling Israel the society like mine? I'm calling it Israel in pre-1977, pre and I'm calling the kibbutz very much the society that you would have loved, that, that you advocate for, and, and I would consider it a, a horrible life. It's, it's one, one of the reasons I left, one of the many reasons I left, and, and one of the reasons when I experienced the kibbutz, I knew firsthand, you know, the extent to which socialism didn't do what you claim it does. It does the exact opposite. But I don't want to get there yet, right? I'm, I'm happy to go on and debate socialism at some point. I'm much more interested in this debate. The point is that, yes, everybody says we want both. We want you to sacrifice other people, and we want you to live a good, flourishing life. But in any decision where the two are in competition, we know what is elevated above the other. We know what we, we know so. what we as a society, we know what we as a culture view as important. What we as a culture and view as a society view as important is how we act, is the sacrifice we do to other people, the saints that we have. And saints, I include secular saints. The people we elevate as moral heroes are always, always the people who have a horrible life but have lived for the sake of other people. Happy people, happy people flourishing people, successful people, people who've lived well, that have experienced life to the fullest, have experienced life to the most, never make it to moral sainthood, not in your socialist mythology, not in Christian mythology, and not in popular culture mythology. Now, let me get get back a second. Let me get back to the conflict of interest. I'm not interested in sainthood, right? But if you want to ask me, sainthood is the standard for what we consider the moral ideal. It's, think, it's a standard for what we consider them all ideal and what we're striving towards. Is certainly somebody who would admire. Uh, who, who, who do you admire? Uh, would, would, be, uh, would be Paul Robeson, who's, uh, who's uh, an example of somebody. But Paul Robeson, you admire yes. him because he suffered. You admire him because he struggled, not because he was happy and successful. I admire Paul Robeson because he had a great voice. Robeson is admired uh, is precisely his development of his individual talents as a musician and in other ways. No. But if also... Yes, of course. Absolutely. But if he was just that, that, if he was just also, that, you wouldn't admire also, him. Also, we admire the fact that he's not just doing that, that he's also trying to create a society where other people can live up to their potential because they matter just as much. It's not true that every time there's a conflict between yourself and others. Yes, others say that you always have to sacrifice yourself. I don't know any leftist or socialist who thinks that we should have uh, involuntary distribution of kidneys, uh, that, uh, that you're a bad person if you don't do organ donation. No, you know, 
Nobody on the left says that. What they do say reflects a reasonable balance between your own interests and the interests of everybody else. That, in other words, everybody, everybody could live a good life, but you also have to pay some taxes that support things like healthcare and education so everybody else can have their basic needs met and have a meaningful opportunity to pursue their dreams. Yes, if you work at a worker cooperative or one of those kibbutzim that you hate so much, uh, you have a vote and a voice, but so does everybody else. And that's why they don't it's, exist It's, it's not a binary choice between letting yourself live a good life and a full life and, and live up to your potential and letting other people. The question, rather, is how can you live a good life and also help everybody else to? So I am relieved that you are not after my kidney. But I also know that you would love to come into my house and take my stuff, my stuff. Uh, I also know that no, you would love no, to get into my I'd bank love account. I'd to take a little bit of your bank account. Uh, no, no, no. You would, there's no limit. The only reason I have no stuff. Limit. No let me Let's be clear. The only reason I have stuff is because I have a bank account and I have money in the bank account. And the more you take, and look, they already take 50% of my bank, my, my, what I have in my bank account. You would like to take 90%. You would ultimately, if you're a real socialist and you believe in a kibbutz, you would like to take 100%. You would like to tell me exactly what I would have in my house I lived on a kibbutz. I know a kibbutz. You don't have a television bigger than mine. Everybody has the same television. Everybody has the same kitchen. Actually, nobody has a kitchen because we all eat in a communal dining space. So let's be honest about what socialism is. You want to come into my house. You want to take my stuff. You want to take everything in my bank account, or at least the significant majority of what I have in my uh, bank account. Nobody wants, you wanna, nobody let, wants let, to take anything I, I left. I let you. I let you finish. Uh, and, and of course you do. I mean, that's exactly what socialism is. You want, if I, let me ask you this, in a socialist society, like in my society, in a free market society, uh, you can start a commune, you can start a kibbutz, you can do your thing, you can uh, share each according to his, from each according to his ability, each according to his needs. You can do all that and live pathetic, miserable lives. But, you know, if I wanted to start a business in your society, I would go to jail. If somebody wanted to be my employee and create a product and sell it based on the standards of employee-employer relationship, I would go to jail. So don't tell me for one second that you are for freedom and for people exercising their own potential, or you don't want to come into my house and take my stuff. Of course you do. You should admit it because that is exactly what is involved. The kibbutz, when you joined the kibbutz, you didn't keep your stuff. You put all your stuff into communal bank account and they took all of your stuff. You don't want a voluntary kibbutz. You want the entire country to be a kibbutz. That's what socialism is. And you want all of us to put our money into a joint account. Now, but, but let me, let me, I want to address whoa, 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 the philosophical whoa, whoa, point that you made. You just said a lot there, Yaren. So I so, did, but that's because you're, you're, you're drifting to politics when I still I'm, have I'm my ethical point. The same question. The question of, whether we only have an obligation to ourselves. I think we have an obligation to other people. I think you lived against an obligation, think, obligation to other people is the same question as the question no, of, of whether of I should have my political way, rights, I, Let me ask you one question rights. and then I'll shut up. Sure. Me, can I ask you one question and then I'll, I'll be quiet. Sure. And let ask what you like. I mean, I, I claim that the obligation to yourself comes from the fact that you have one life, that you are you, and that you have this fundamental choice in life between living and dying, and that living requires certain actions, and requires you certain your mind, requires a certain focus, requires certain thinking. It requires something. That's where the obligation to you comes from. I believe that the obligation to other people comes from that obligation. 
So you have an obligation to other people, but the primary obligation is to you because you are the living entity and, and you have this one life and, and it's your choices that have to be made. I'd like to ask you, you seem to think that these two obligations are the same. I think you actually think the obligation to other people is higher than the obligation to yourself. I want, just want to know where they come from, philosophically. And don't say the categorical imperatives because that is the biggest cop-out in the world. That's like saying God, right? I want to know in logic, where does it come from? Because for Kant, categorical imperatives are God. We know that, right? He was very religious, very Christian. And at the end of the day, that's what he meant. Where do these categorical imperatives, where does this duty to others come from that places it above your, your responsibilities and obligations to yourself or at the same level as it? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, Kant's uh, view uh, is, is not actually uh, a religious view at all. There is an argument that he makes you know, for the existence of God at the end, because I think in Prussia at the time he was doing it, you kind of had to do that. But the moral system itself yeah, is, uh, is, completely, uh, is completely secular uh, and, uh, and completely detachable from that. But look, the reason that we have moral obligations to others is the same reason we have moral obligations to ourselves. That because the fact that I only have one life to live and my life, my flourishing has value, similarly, everybody else only has one life to live and their life, their flourishing has value. So I shouldn't be trampling on it for the sake of mine. Now, this is not, this is not a binary choice between living only for yourself and dying. You can live, but also while pursuing your own dreams, help create a society and participate in a society where everybody else can pursue their dreams. So for example, nobody, Yarn, nobody. I, I really hope you get this because this, you'll be able to sleep much easier knowing this. <laughs> no one wants to come into your house and take your personal possessions. In fact, but if, but of course I, you do. There's, you, there's a, no, we don't. In fact, you. if you read even Karl Marx, even the Communist Manifesto, there is a distinction there between personal property and private property in the means of production. Like, you know, it's it's very quick, right? You can read it after. My, my, I'm a finance guy. My means of production are right here. My means of production is my computer. You can't differentiate between the means of production of private property and and personal property. That is bizarre. And the idea. I gotta finish. Gotta finish the point here that they have uh, that private property in the external means of production. Nobody says means of production and means. The, you know, your muscle, your brain, they're talking about the external, the social means of production. And there is a distinction there between that and personal property. No one wants to take your personal property. So you don't want to take what the we, 200 billion away from yard. Got to finish here. Talk for a while, Yard. The point is that now we do want to take some of what is in your bank account in order. So, for example, if someone else's dream, someone else's flourishing is to uh, go to medical school and become a doctor. Someone else's dream uh, is, that, uh, is that they're going to become a great artist, etc. that they're not blocked from it because they can't afford to pursue an education. They're not blocked from it because they can't quit the job they hate because they'll lose their employer health insurance. They're not blocked from it because they have to work constantly at a mind-numbing job just to survive. So it's not that either we can 
uh, we can care about ourselves, we can flourish, we can live good lives, we can develop our talents, or we can care about other people. In fact, a reasonable, a reasonable approach to life involves absolutely nurturing your own talents, but also doing what's necessary to contribute to society where everybody else can nurture their talents too. So, so I'm, I'm, I have no problem with the fact that part of life is helping people out there achieve their own success. Indeed, you know, what do I do with my life? I, I, I do this kind of stuff, not because, just because I enjoy it, but because I'm hoping that some of your listeners might discover a philosophy that will make their life better. So I care about other people as because it's part of my life. And, and you're right. My own flourishing, my own success, part of that is other people's flourishing and success. But this is the point. You want to handcuff me. You want to decide. You want to decide. Or the majority want to decide. What dreams I should have. What dreams are worthy and what dreams are unworthy. I, I'll give you a quick example. Jeff Bezos has a dream of building a spaceship to go to Mars. Now, you might think that's funny. Or you might think that's ridiculous. Or you might think that, oh, how dare he? Which is, I expect what you think. He needs $100 billion to do that. You're not going to allow him to do that. Clearly, you say the most important dreams are the dreams of those people who don't have health insurance or whatever, whatever you come up with as your, you decide what dreams are worthy and what dreams are not worthy. And you're going to sacrifice the dreams of some people by definition because you believe in a zero-sum world. I do not. See, I believe that the way for individuals to prosper is by leaving them alone, by helping them when it's in my interest to help them, by assisting them when I want to assist them. You believe in organized coercion, organized force, organized command and control that determines the hierarchy of people's dreams, takes dreams from some and gives them to others. Um, and, and, and thus, I believe, destroy everybody's dreams. Because the other thing you assume, and the video you showed early on assumes, you assume that wealth is a given, that money is just there. That, oh, no, uh, I don't. I think it's yes, clean, you do. I think it's production, labor. I think production just happens. Labor doesn't produce. lays the golden eggs. Labor, labor the working produce, class that, that labor produces. would have a red cent, even not for the people who work in his warehouses. And of course, that needs to be brought and utter with, economic with, with e physical with physical capital. And and that can be done in a, in a worker cooperative. That could be done in a publicly owned firm. That could be done in a number of different situations. But no, it can't. Is, no, it can't. None of that could be done in a worker cooperative. None of it has been done in a worker cooperative. They cannot be done in a worker cooperative. They have a fantastic research and development arm. Who does? Uh, Madrigan in Spain. Oh, Madrigan Corporation. Every debate I hear about Madrigan. You should actually do your research about Madrigan. Research and development are there's lots of there's lots of yes, innovation. No, I, I, there's I, I, lots I, of innovation going on there. But yeah. here's the point. I use hey. Zoom developed by Madrigan. I use many apps on my iPhone developed by Madrigan. Madrigan is so innovative and productive that its apps uh, uh, and its applications and technologies are known worldwide. The one co-op that still exists and one wonders why it exists partially because it has spun off a number of its businesses that actually run like normal businesses and and the ones who produce money uh, and and it treats its employees at least in portions of its business like every business owner treats its employees it's a very very mixed case that you bring up but it's the one example you have 
every innovation that you are using right now, every innovation that all of your, all of your listeners uses every single day in every single aspect was a product of some individual's mind. Some entrepreneur had to think of the idea. Some scientist well, that's, that's had not, to that's invent the process. Well. And yes, that's and not yes, at all how innovation works of in the course real it is. world. Of course it's it is. It's a product and, of what and, entrepreneurs buy. Well, of course it is. It's you always need, times, you often need an entrepreneur it it doesn't happen in an R&D department. This but, is my but, point. But I, I, I this is my point about you thinking you wealth earlier, is just there. Wealth is an achievement. Wealth requires the, the, yes. the focused effort of certain individuals. It, not everybody can achieve that, whereas manual labor is not an achievement. Manual labor is something human beings have been able to do from the beginning of time. Manual labor is interchangeable. It doesn't matter if Joe or Janet does the manual labor, but it certainly matters whether Joe or Janet was the head of Apple uh, it, it, at the beginning, but Joe and Janet couldn't have done what Steve did, didn't do what Steve did, and nobody has done what Steve did other than Steve, right? So well, the difference is the fundamental differences, and this is what Steve did quite. A this is what wealth leads to. But this is what comes from the mind of Steve. Because I, I do not want to let this get lost, <laughs> yeah. right? In a couple of minutes we have left, that you talked about organized force. You talked about some yeah. people's dreams being yeah. sacrificed other people's dreams. Now, any society uh, where you enforce any rules, very much included a no trespass inside, is going to involve some element of coercion. The question is, which rules that you're coercively enforcing are justified? Uh, and do I, uh, do I want Jeff Bezos to be able to have $100 million generated by, uh, by the labor physical and mental of people who work for him in his warehouses, people who work for him in his R&D department. Do I want him to have those to spend on a spaceship to go to Mars? Well, I think spaceships to go to Mars are nice, but somehow I'm a little bit more concerned about giving a basic, decent minimum to the people who work in those warehouses and make him rich so they can achieve their full potential in life. Um, now, obviously, there have been a lot of strands of what we've talked about today. It's a huge, Can I just say something about property? It's a huge discussion. I'm going to give you the last word uh, okay. before we go. Uh, okay. But, uh, but, but I, I do want to make sure, uh, because obviously in the last 40 minutes, whatever it's been, we've just scratched the surface. I think that's yes, inevitable. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, so so I, I do want you to come back uh, to, uh, to pursue some of these other strands, to, uh, to talk about some of the political takeaways of all this. But, uh, but, for, but uh, before we go to David Griscom for the last segment, uh, I'm going to give you the last word. Sure. Thank you. So uh, let me just say something about property. This idea that property rights do not trespass is some optional thing and that defending property rights is, you know, is just as coercive as taking money from a bank account, which is truly coercive. You're stealing it. Um, it that is ludicrous. Human life requires human life, individual human life requires that, and this goes back to the, to the foundations of what I talked about. If I produce something, I produced it. Whether I grow vegetables in my garden, that is mine. I produce it, and then I can, ex then I can exchange it. If, if there is no, no trespassing sign, if that no trespassing sign in my garden doesn't exist, then what you have is anarchy. What you have is the only means by which human beings can negotiate with one another, can, can live with one another, is through force. 
This is, a, this is feudalism. This is every pre-capitalist system of government. This is the kind of government where the force, the gun, was what pervaded in human interaction. Capitalism is an achievement because it takes away the idea of using coercion in order to gain values. I create my garden. You don't trespass on it. That should be pretty simple to understand. And then if I negotiate on a, in, a, in a voluntary manner with other people to have them come and help cultivate the garden, and I pay them a salary for that, it's voluntary. Nobody's being forced to do it. Uh, that is the essence of what freedom means. Now, you're saying, no, they should be able to take my fruit. They should be able to do whatever they want with my land, with my, what, what, is, what I have cultivated. That is a recipe for human disaster. That is a recipe for violence and destruction. And it's a recipe for the destruction of civilization. Property rights are massive achievement. And of what have led to the, I'll finish on this, that what have led to the creation of wealth that you now want to expropriate today, that over the last 250 years that have led to the, in the West at least, the annihilation of real poverty in the West and to a standard of living that was unimaginable. That is a product of property rights, which is just one aspect of individual rights more broadly. But there's a lot to talk about, as you said. Yeah, there there, there is. uh, I agree with you that capitalism is better than feudalism. Uh, Maybe you can come back. I'm opposite that, so that's uh, no big big deal. (laughs) Maybe you can come back to talk with me more about whether we could do better than capitalism and also whether the – Individual we have it for one. We've never had it, so it yeah, the individual, the individual gardener uh, who's uh, who's negotiating with other people at the same level as him is a good model for how capitalism actually works. But that is going to have to be a future discussion. Uh, thank you so much for 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 coming on, Yaren. Uh, we are Thanks definitely going to have to do this again. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having right. me on. Bye. Thank you. That was Yaron Brook uh, from the uh, the Ayn Rand Institute uh, and uh, talking about uh, capitalism and socialism and self-interest and, uh, and greatness. Um, but uh, speaking of greatness, we're now joined by uh, David Griscom uh, from uh, the Michael Brooks Show. Uh, and of course, I've, uh, I've got to uh, finish this up because the rule I give them an argument is when David Griscom walks into the room, you have to switch from beer to whiskey. So, uh, so, so I'm going to finish what's left of this so I can do that. How are you doing today, David? I'm pretty good. Um, I think I'm breaking the rules because I'm drinking tequila this afternoon. Uh, La Gratona is a good uh, reposado, which is close to whiskey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll allow it this time. Um, got some, uh, I guess for outlaws and revolutionaries, bourbon would be more important, more, uh, would, uh, would be more on theme, but drinking some, uh, some Kalska right now, some, uh, some oh, nice smoky scotch. I think everybody should get to, you know, to do that after, uh, after spending 40 minutes, uh, arguing with libertarian. Explaining what property rights are. It's always funny to me how those conversations, they always act as if property rights, you know, with some kind of discussion instead of a horribly violent activity, you know? It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I mean, this gets back to stuff I've heard you talk about before about Rousseau and, um, and, and what he thinks about property. 
Uh, but but it's also just uh, it always it always strikes me as kind of news from um, from nowhere, right? Like like we're we're kind of trying to speculate about what benevolent processes might have led to the development of capitalism in some alternative reality, rather than talking about the way capitalism actually emerged in ours, which. Uh, as Mark says, and uh, in Capital Volume One, uh, capital emerges into the world, dripping with dirt and blood from uh, from every pore, uh, <laughs> which is a pretty good description of uh, enclosure uh, in Britain. It's a pretty good description of the way colonialism and slave trade. Well, even uh, like the deranged fantasy that we're going to go and take everyone's flat screen TV. I will say that's nicer than what <laughs> what the capitalists did to expropriate all the property that they ended up uh, using to fund the industrial revolution for example yeah right like like yeah exactly like if that's how we get even like honestly on a moral level that's okay that's not what i want to do i agree but yeah yeah he can he can keep his he can keep his tv set uh i'm afraid that that jeff bezos can't have that spaceship to go to mars because uh we're going to need that money for things like education and healthcare. And maybe once we get all that stuff taken care of, we can have a space program that everybody has democratic input into. Uh, but, uh, but I guess, I guess in, in that view, that's choosing death over life and not allowing, uh, not allowing anybody to prosper. Uh, seems to me that we can do both that we can have, uh, that we can uh, have individuals live up to their potential and do things like uh, produce great music. Well, mm-hmm. also, uh, helping other people live up to their potential, whether by just playing along with the rules of more just society if we got it, uh, or by helping to create that more just society, which uh, which brings us to uh, Waylon Jennings, I think. Uh, yeah. so, so the last couple of weeks, uh, we, um, we've done Willie Nelson, we've done Johnny Cash. So I think Waylon is the next obvious place to go. Yeah, I think so, you know. Given uh, you know our homage to the greats to start with, maybe we'll have to do Merle Haggard uh, next week. But Waylon's one of these people, for me, when it comes to country music, if you come to my house and I'm putting something on, it's most likely Waylon Jennings. I think um, you probably actually literally have done that when I've stayed at your apartment a couple times. 100%. It's like the first song that I put on is like no good chain gang. I mean, just musically, um, Waylon Jennings, I think, really captured the essence of the outlaw country music. You know, lyrically, there's some people who I think have, you know, stronger lyrics, but he wrote some great songs too and performed some really great songs. But that kind of just like slow drum beat in the background while you just get a little chicken picking, like dun, 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 you know, that you think is so quintessential uh, outlaw country music. That's Waylon Jennings. And, you know, just a couple of fun stories that people might not know about Waylon. Um, I don't know if you know this, uh, Ben, but, you know, he was uh, he played with Buddy Holly, um, who also grew up in the same small town in Texas as he did. And he was in Buddy Holly's band for a few years. And the day that Buddy Holly died, Waylon Jennings was supposed to be on that plane. And as the story goes, and it's been corrected now, but the original story used to go was because Waylon got too drunk the night before and was massively hung over and missed the plane. But actually, it's even kinder. I cannot remember the other member of the band, but there was an older gentleman in the band with him, with Buddy Holly. And Waylon basically said, you know, he can have my seat. I'll take the bus. Uh, being a really kind person. And apparently him and Buddy Holly had a really uh, fun, you know, funny relationship. And Buddy was joking with him saying, I hope your bus breaks down. And Waylon allegedly said, I hope your plane crashes. 
which is one of those just bizarre uh. things. <laughs> it's <just a> history. <laughs> um, but, you know, Buddy was someone who was really important to Whalen, and Whalen spent the rest of his life continuing to honor him. But it's just one of those interesting stories where, you know, somebody like this could have also been lost in this tragic accident. And I don't think that people know that connection because Buddy Holly is so much more in a rock and roll uh, mm-hmm. scene. But yeah, Whalen, um, Whalen was just like, uh, you know, Willie and all these guys who was coming up in this, uh, he was a little bit more rockabilly at first, and then he started getting into country music, but it's the same kind of thing as him and as, as Willie Nelson had to deal with, you know, conservative, not necessarily politically, but more socially, uh, producers trying to make you sing the classics, sing the hits, don't do anything dangerous. And Whalen Jennings just basically through, you know, his own stardom and ability and just grit producing albums and records on his own, sometimes even without the approval of his uh, record label. Um, just an amazing, amazing singer and uh, and performer. There's a really great video, which I'll post, I guess this is what I have to do. Uh, for people to be able to listen to music. Um, there's a song, Way More's Blues, that, uh, that Whalen wrote. And Shel Silverstein, who people might not know, it was a very famous country songwriter as well, as well as being an incredible author, was very much in the folk and country sing, um, uh, scene. And uh, anyways, the song Waymore's Blues, Shel Silverstein said, is the perfect American folk song. So I highly suggest people listen to it. It's one of those great songs where Waylon even admits in the video that I'll post that he doesn't even really know what the last bit of the song was about. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, Whalen, Whalen's was an absolutely incredible, uh, you know, musician. I was thinking, I was trying to think of what so- songs to highlight yeah. uh, in abstract. And I was thinking I should do my little ACAB Whalen Jennings uh, run through. And one of my favorite songs is Ain't No Good Chain Gang. And that's, you know, you got to understand just like how prevalent just arrests were in the South at that period of time. If you were out too late at a bar, you were going to jail and they were going to make you work. A really obviously exploitative system that all these country music uh, singers from that time like really understood and wrote a lot about in their songs. Uh, But I was listening to this song this morning that I had just discovered um, through really another another really great uh, country artist called Charlie Crockett, um, who I highly suggest he's contemporary. But he covered a song that was made famous by Willie Nelson, um, and then Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings sang it again later called "Black Jack County Chain." And it's a song about a uh, no-good uh, sheriff in a small town who basically whenever Riff Raff would come to town, he would arrest them and put them on the chain gang and make them work, uh, you know, basically, you know, for no pay and you know, slavery, you know, basically hold people in chains. Anyways, it's a story about a guy who gets captured and then gets together with his other comrade prisoners, and they use that chain to kill and strangle the uh, – the uh, the sheriff in town and Willie Nelson made it famous and it went off the radio for a long time obviously because people were censoring it and then Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson recorded another version of it later and then it sort of has lived on since it's a great song (laughs) yeah yeah man that's uh uh so I've still got Yara Brooke in my mind you know just uh just thinking about that as far as uh some people's dreams crushing other people's dreams. And, uh, That's a great example. We're going to go with the, uh, the guy who runs the chain gang, or are you going to go with all the people who, uh, who he's uh, forced into labor for him until they use the chain to, uh, to kill him, uh, which I would argue is kind of the same, the same choice between uh, letting Jeff Bezos have the spaceship and, uh, uh, and, and siding with the uh, the people whose dreams are being crushed every day as warehouses. 
but yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And I think I think I want to just get into this just for a minute because I, I think that like because of maybe cultural trends since that era, uh, especially with the kind of rise of a certain kind of like very corporatized like mm-hmm. country like country radio station kind of country music. They never wanted that to happen again. Yeah. They never wanted Waylon Jennings and John. They wanted the sales, you know, but they never wanted people who are sort of pushing the envelope like those people were. Yeah, right, exactly. And and I think that, like, it seems like the kind of thing where, like, if you can recognize that there's an important distinction between Nickelback and Led Zeppelin, you should be able to recognize that, like, a lot of what we call country music now is both politically certainly and also just musically right like not in the same category as what you've been talking about for the last couple of weeks well i think that that's 100 percent true and i mean i would say that you know you don't have to make the distinction though between like old and new country i think yeah um what you have to understand is that all these people that are really famous and we look fondly on were people who are having to fight against their system i mean like you know willie nelson for example you know, had everything he owned and pounded by the IRS and was completely broke for a few years. And he has a tape. I can't remember. I, I think it's the IRS tapes is the name of the album. But he recorded an album um, and all the record sales still go to the IRS. Right? Like these are people who like, yes, they made a lot of money, had commercial success and all this kind of thing. But they were sort of operating in a different scheme than, you know, a lot of kind of like big pop artists do today, for example. And I, I bring that up to say, like, there are a lot of people making really amazing country music uh, today. And that scene still exists. It's just that, you know, to be able to be known, you have to have that kind of streak of dumb luck, grit and determination. And then hopefully, you know, a couple of people inside of a record industry who are still going to produce your albums, even if they know they're politically, you know, they're going to get them into trouble. But I, I also just briefly, if you'll let me, yeah, um, I just want to say about Whalen specifically, because with everyone else, I sort of told a couple like political stories or whatever. And, you know, Whalen wasn't like Willie um, when it came to uh, that kind of, or Johnny Cash even when it came to that kind of stuff. But I think that it would be wrong to think of him as like a right wing a figure, for example, uh, which some people have have done in the past, like, First of all, my first argument would be that, you know, Whalen at the height of his career was traveling around the Navajo Nation playing free concerts um, for people on the reservations there, um, you know, to show his like solidarity and support. Like he was a he was somebody who had a good sense of of the world and what was going on around him. And the thing about Whalen Jennings, if you look at even his public persona and his character and his music. He wasn't a good man, but he wasn't a bad man. And that's what outlaw country, the whole genre of music is, right? It's about people who are trying their best and they're trying, uh, you know, to give, they understand that they have severe limitations and things like that. Um, but they also are accepting of who they are as a person. And like Waylon Jennings was a, you know, was a cowboy, a maverick and, you know, a free spirit. And I think re- represents a kind of, you know, American identity that I think has really radical roots, honestly. It's definitely anti-authority. Um, it's definitely against wealth. It's definitely, I mean, he has all these, Whalen has all these great songs like Love of the Common People. And literally talking about how he loves that where he's from and the people that he sees. When you need help, your neighbor will help you. I mean, those kind of values are very, very American values. And the ones that some of our libertarian friends would focus on would be like the individualistic aspect of it. But I'm telling you, like, you know, looking out for your neighbor, uh, being strong and standing up for yourself, standing up for your community against authority. Like these are country values too. 
And I think Waylon Jennings really embodies that, in my opinion. Yeah, no question. Uh, that, you know, I mean, it's certainly like it embodies like a certain kind of uh, working class experience, you know, that's mm-hmm. reflected there. Um, and, and also that I think that that freedom, right, that like uh, that, like even even the sense of, of individual freedom, right? This is part of why uh, earlier in the episode before the debate with Yara Brook, I, I, I played your uh, your Jackman video. Uh, about greatness mm-hmm. that like when we see uh, this kind of music often um, yeah both I mean you're absolutely right we shouldn't make the distinction temporal because that that uh, that like erases a lot of like really good valuable stuff right that's not necessarily played on those radio stations but that like is being made today um, but um, but when a lot of this music celebrates like some sense of individual freedom uh, and, and people being, being stifled, you know, by, by authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think if we kind of react to that, it's like, oh, that's like a, a conservative thing uh, that then we've really uh, seeded ground that we shouldn't be seeding. Right. Because, uh, because of course, like we, you know, we identify with, you know, we support, you know, the struggles of people, who are being suppressed in all kinds of ways. I think that 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 uh, the lyrics of, of that uh, Chain Gang song that you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, are are very relevant to that. You know, like if, if you sort of think of that as like a little microsm of the uh, prison industrial complex that's like really ballooned in the time since then. Um, but also, like we want everybody to be able to fulfill. Uh, whatever their personal potential is, right? You know, like, 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 like we, we don't want anybody like that Stephen Jay Gould uh, quote that you used in uh, in your video. We don't want anybody who could have contributed what Einstein contributed to the world to not do that because they had to work all day in fields or in a sweatshop, uh, you know, or in shade gang, right? You know, uh, we uh, we want uh, we want people who could uh, who could be like Paul Robeson, right? You know, to uh, to be able to contribute what somebody like Robeson contributed artistically without being held back either by the sort of racial caste system that Robeson had to uh, had to work so hard to get past uh, or uh, or just by by poverty right just just by just by not being in a position to develop that talent right you know because because they're um, they have to spend all of their time you know working uh, just to get by uh, and and, and like, really, I think that there, there is a reason why uh, socialists have always used this language of, of freedom, right? You know, even, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's right there in the Communist Manifesto, right? The free development of each and the free development of all, uh, because we want, and I, I mean, I know at this point of the episode, it's like probably getting repetitive, but like, I, I just think this is such an incredibly important point, right? Like, we care about everybody being able to live their own life however the hell they want to live it, right? You can't build a spaceship if other people need to eat, right? Like, like we'll draw the line there. But, uh, you know, but we want people to be able to live the lives they, they, you know, that they want to live and not be constrained either by literal chain gangs uh, or just by, like, a system uh, that makes uh, some people spend their days doing mind-numbing labor so they can enrich others. I think so, 100%. I would just add, like, it's freedom and, and it's grit. And I use that word grit specifically because the grit that I'm talking about, the Whalen Jennings, that kind of outlaw country grit, um, 
is, you know, standing up for yourselves, but also like a refusal, kind of radical refusal to recognize like the social relations there. So like when you have a police officer or somebody like that, you know, doing something wrong, you stand up to them, even if you know you're going to get, you know, beat or hit or whatever. Um, and I, I say that story, you know, for example, like the Blackjack uh, County um, chain song. I think about a great lyric that Paul Robeson um, sang. So Paul Robeson wrote, uh, I cannot remember the movie he sang this in, but uh, um, he sang this song called Old Man River. And it was mm-hmm. a very famous song. He, I mean, it's a beautiful rendition, but the original lyrics were quite, you know, minstrelly, right? Um, they were, they were about, you know, kind of African-American man in the South who was sort of, you know, whimsical, you know, all those kind of stereotypes. And Paul Robeson throughout his life started changing the lyrics to that song until the song that was, you know, a kind of parody, you know, uh, uh, became like almost a radical cry for change. And I won't do the, um, you know, so like in the original version, there's a line that said like, you get a little drunk and you land in jail, right? Which is saying like, okay, so all these people who are in jail, they're just drunk. They're just sort of stupid, right? But Paul Robeson later changes it and he says, you show a little grit and you land in jail. And that was the real experience that was happening at that time as people were standing up against these systems and they were being thrown in prison, right? So that grit goes all the way through. And I think that that's also something uh, that, you know, we really need to be reclaiming in our, part, in our politics and our uh, communities. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, like you, you don't want to, you don't want to see, you know, any of any of this stuff, right? Like to uh, to to the opposition politically, that this is this is something um, that you know that we care about. Everybody getting to exercise mm-hmm. everything that's that's valuable in their lives. Uh, and uh, and by the way, I also want to mention uh, the ropes of discussion reminded me. Uh, I'll I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, there's there's a uh, there's a Robeson song that uh, that I really love uh, that the uh, the audio recording and I don't know what images they put with it uh, is on YouTube. I believe it might have been from one of his trips to the Soviet Union. I'm not sure, but uh, he's uh, he's singing a uh, a song uh, in Yiddish from the uh, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and, That's and it, it's it's just incredibly powerful. Um, and I remember, um, God, a couple of years ago, uh, when um, when there was that uh, there was that you know synagogue shooting in in Pittsburgh in a uh, in neighborhood I used to live in actually I used to pass by that place every day, and at the same time uh, the uh, the fascist uh, Bolsonaro government had just come to power in Brazil, and it was a very uh, it was a very bleak uh, you know a couple months there and I. Um, and and there was a while like when, when I was I was processing those those news items when I was listening to that song you know uh, quite quite a bit right it's it's like really it's really powerful and and uh, and inspiring right to hear hear him do that just in that amazing Paul Robeson baritone. No, that's absolutely beautiful. I mean, yeah, Paul Robeson's understanding of like you know the folk traditions too, and just like how powerful singing other people's songs can can really be. Um, and, you know, singing other people's songs, I don't even like that language, like singing songs that are like, you know, from your, your history or, or tradition sure, and recognizing them as international human songs of like liberation. That was what he did is he like took all these, you know, folk songs and songs of specific groups and just like turn them into like the music of the world, which I think is so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like I, I, I think that, uh, the stuff that our, uh, departed brother, Michael Brooks talks about in the last chapter of against the web, about cosmopolitan socialism and how like not only should we not 
get into this weird moralistic framework where we're we spend all of our time worried about like who's allowed to produce or consume what and you know what's appropriative uh, yeah. but, but rather that we uh we encourage right uh intermingling because uh all of this stuff uh is is the collective inheritance of of the human race and we want everybody to be able to um to to enjoy and be inspired by and kind of take into themselves uh everything that's that's good from uh from every tradition um so so yeah i think that's really beautiful i uh, just want to real quick somebody in the q a says uh seeing as you guys are both music buffs in a way what do you think of uh, rolling stone magazine just curious uh i will say that i think that um that over the years there have been there has been really good stuff that's been published there the hunter s thompson way back when um you know matt taibbi more recently uh they've they've also published a lot of tedious garbage but uh mm-hmm. but, but maybe uh maybe you have some thoughts on that I mean, I don't have anything uh, too much. The Rolling Stones, there's Rolling Stones actually country, which has some pretty decent, like really great uh, country reporting in it. But I don't have any particular hot takes. I mean, it's a cool magazine, man. I mean, it has like a really phenomenal history. They publish a lot of garbage too, obviously. Um, you know, I don't have any anything too good on it. If people are interested in like any good writing on like country folk music, uh, No Depression is, is one to check out. But uh, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, uh, David. So we're going to be off uh, next week uh, because it's uh, we're not going to make our uh, video editor for us work on Labor Day weekend. Uh, but uh, we're going to be back the week after that with uh, Freddie DeBoer uh, to uh, to talk about uh, his his new book uh, about education, the cult of smart, and then uh, and. Uh, Actually, before that, Thomas Frank uh, to talk about his book, The People Know, A Brief History of Antipopulism, which, by the way, if you haven't read, I think that would like dovetail really neatly with a lot of your interests mm. in the history of, of populism, like real populism with capital P. Uh, but, uh, but I hope that you'll be back then to, uh, let's see, I guess do Merle Haggard. Yeah, uh, sounds good. In a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll talk to you later, man. All right. Thanks, brother. Bye. Bye. All right, that was David Griscom uh, from the Michael Brooks Show uh, giving us the new installment of the Outlaws and Revolutionaries segment that we've been doing every week. Uh, Before that, uh, you heard Nathan Robinson uh, talking about the article that I co-wrote with him uh, for the new issue of Current Affairs called Educated Glenn Beck. Uh, And there was also a spirited debate with Yara Brook from the Ayn Rand Institute about duties to yourself, duties to other people, personal greatness, and how all that relates to capitalism and socialism. Uh, as I said to David just now, we are going to be off. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, I, I hope this person is joking. Somebody in chat says, where is Griscom from? Uh, I think that he answers, uh, he answers that question um, almost every time he talks. I'm amazed that it didn't come up today. Uh, David Griscom is the second proudest Texan that I know after my father-in-law. Uh but in any case, uh, we're going to be off next week uh, for, uh, for Labor Day. And then we're going to be back uh, the next week with Freddie DeBoer and Thomas Frank. I will see you all then. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. This has been Give Them an Argument.